Sometimes descriptions of things can be accurate, but entirely miss the point. Sometimes titles of books and movies are incredibly misleading, sometimes because the author is creative. Other times, it's maybe they thought they were arguing one thing, but something else. So I did some work on some movies and some incorrect descriptions, incorrect in that they miss the main point, but correct in that they are talking about the movie. So I'm going to give these to you guys, and we'll see if you can figure them out. So here's the first one. This one's an easy one. Group spends nine hours returning jewelry. Anybody have a guess of what movie that would be? All right, Sophia, show us what it is. It's The Lord of the Rings. That was an easy one, and I didn't hear anybody get it right, so you guys are in trouble. This quiz you're not passing. All right, here's another one. Years of pretending to reform a dangerous outlaw violates his parole. Not Robin Hood. It's The Incredibles. Remember, he wasn't supposed to use his pooper powers. How about this one? This is another cartoon, so that gives you a little hint. A father becomes concerned with his daughter's hoarding habit. Little Mermaid, that is correct. Now, you guys are seeing these, right? You're, you're seeing these are correct, but they're kind of missing the point. How about this one? Uh, you can hear this one, right? A man's past returns to haunt him in ways he can't control. Every movie ever, right? Actually, Groundhog Day. <laughs> right? Here's a tough one. An army veteran learns about family values when he takes over his aging father's business of crime. The Godfather. Right. And this last one I had to just throw in because it's funny. It's stupid, but it's funny. Talking frog convinced son to kill dad. Star Wars. Right? <laughs> so you see that sometimes the descriptions we have for things are off. And I'm going to tell you all, in your Bibles, you have headlines. Some of your Bibles will have these little kind of like bolded headlines that tell you what the section's about. And it's nice, right? It helps us find passages. If we can't remember the exact verse, the address, we go, oh, 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 yep, there it is right there. There's Lazarus, and there's the tomb, and so on. However, the title of this section gets it wrong in most of our Bibles. Actually, as a matter of fact, I didn't find, I didn't go through all of them, but I didn't find a Bible that I think got it right. My Bible, my ESV Bible says, this section is laborers in the vineyard. Some of yours might say vineyard workers or the parable of the vineyard or something like that. Well, talk about missing the entire point. Yeah, there's a vineyard and yeah, there's workers, but there is one focus of this parable. And the focus we'll be showing you guys in a few minutes, so bear with me. So let's get into this chapter. So we're just finishing up chapter 19. We talked about marriage and divorce. We talked about singleness and children. We talked about the goodness of God, how bad things can happen on this earth, but God still be good. Last week, we talked about the seduction of idols, using the rich young ruler as kind of a jumping off point. So we talked about wealth. And we finished last week with the disciples saying, Lord, we gave up everything for you. What do we get? And we talked about that 
Is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus when you give up everything? And the answer we came up with was a resounding yes, it is worth it. So here today is really the culmination of this chapter that we've been in. So first it was the questions about divorce and marriage and then who it is that can inherit the kingdom. And then this rich man comes along and says, what else do I need to do to go have eternal life? So here Jesus wants his disciples to not miss it. So he gives them a parable. Now the word parable comes to us from the Greek and it means to set beside or set alongside. So if we think about it this way, a parable is here's something that just happened and Jesus is going to take a story and he's going to set it beside it to bring out points in the main story, right? So we don't know if this is an actual real historical event. It doesn't have to be. Now Jesus, being omniscient, he could have chosen a story that was a real story. We'll find out when we get to heaven and we get to look it up. But what we do know is that this is Jesus saying, I want to teach you something. And I'm going to teach it to you through a story. Parables usually have one main point. And when we get into trouble is when we start following other things out there. There's one main point. And so the point here is that God is the only one who is good. See, early on, Jesus was asked, you know, uh, good teacher. And he goes, but only God is good. And here, he's defending the goodness of God. So our main point is that we're to rejoice in the goodness of God and emulate that and be like that to those around us. Because ultimately, the focus of our parable is not the vineyard workers. It's not the vineyard. It's not trying to figure out, does the vineyard represent Israel? Does it represent this? Who are the vineyard workers? Are they Gentiles? Are they? That's not the point. The point is clear. The vineyard owner is what this parable is about. So if you really want to be really kind of snarky, you could take your pen and cross out vineyard workers in your Bible and write vineyard owner, because that's what this is about. The vineyard owner is the master. It is God. God is sovereign. God is impartial. God is just. And God is generous. These are all the attributes that are on display. And what Jesus is saying is, I want you to all see how great God is in this. Don't miss this opportunity of this rich man trying to earn his way into heaven to miss the fact that God is who he is. So we're going to look at that today. Because God's gift of salvation is just, it is generous, it is great. And so we got to see that correctly. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the passage rather quick, and that's going to be the first little bit of the sermon. And the second half is we're going to talk through the passage, because a parable is not meant to be pulled apart and look at every sentence. Instead, we're going to walk through it, and then we're going to talk about what we see in it. And what we can see is who God is and our responses to him. So if you want to outline, we're going to look at the passage, then we're going to talk about God, and then we're going to talk about us. So here is the bracketing sentences. Look at verse 30 of chapter 19. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Then the last verse of this section, verse 16 of chapter 20, says the same but flipped. The last will be first, and the first will be last. So this is the bracket. Jesus is teaching us what these two phrases mean and why it's important. The rich man who can't give up anything or can't give up everything to gain the kingdom 
and the disciples who've given up everything and want to obtain the kingdom. These are the two groups that are being addressed here. This parable lets us know that all types of people can be in the kingdom. Any group doesn't matter attitude, ability, social standing. Anyone can be in the kingdom. God's power through his grace is what brings us in. The logic of the gospel is not, I've done something, therefore God owes me. It's God's done something, and look at the gift of it in my life. We cannot earn our salvation. We can't get it because of what our parents have done, what we have done. There's no price that can be paid. There's no work that can be done. We are saved, and it is of grace and grace with a side of grace. So let's walk through the passage. The first episode we see is the workers are hired. Verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. So we got to set up a few things. There's, there's, some, there's some distance between us and this time that we need to kind of bridge so we get the impact of this. So first off, in verse 1 when it says, he went out early in the morning, that means first light. So about between 5 and 6 a.m., right? You know, when the light starts to be on the horizon, some of you don't know this, but some of you do know it really well, Right? The light starts to get on the horizon, and then once the sun peaks over, that's officially the start of the workday in Palestine, in Israel. So we're talking about 6 a.m. The third hour does not mean 3 a.m. The third hour means 9 a.m. It's three hours after the sun has risen. So we're talking about the first group has been working since 6 a.m. The second group is working since 9 a.m. A denarius. This means a day's wages. So this would be uh, an agreed upon sum. It was kind of set in Israel at this point. It was this many pieces of silver or gold, and it was just agreed upon. Kind of like minimum wage, but instead of like hourly, it's daily. Notice too that the first workers in verse two agreed with the the master of the house. So they, they made an agreement to a day's wages. Then we skip on down to verse 4. He says, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. That word right means just or fair. So it's easy to surmise that these people would have recognized at the third hour, being hired at 9 a.m., that they were going to get less pay than those who'd been hired at 6 a.m. Now, it seems kind of interesting, though. We, we know the end of the story. Mike already read it, and you are already all familiar with it. It seems weird that God says, or Jesus says here that the master says it's going to be fair because we all go, no, no, our, our fair meters are off the charts going, that's not fair. It's not fair that someone works three hours more and gets the same pay. And that's supposed to rise up in us. It's supposed to be there. We're supposed to go, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair. And honestly, we don't really want fair unless it benefits us, right? But here in this situation, we're watching and and we believe we earned something, so we should get paid. We need to get what we deserve. And this is the pinch point of this parable. This is the place where it's supposed to make us a little uncomfortable. And it's going to as we progress into it because God comes along, who's the worker, who's the owner, and he says, I didn't do anything wrong. It's my stuff and I passed it out. You need to stop shutting, you need to shut up and stop grumbling. 
And that is supposed to aggravate us. It's supposed to make us go, that's not fair. That's not right. So we keep going. Going out again about the sixth hour, that's noon, and the ninth hour, three o'clock, the master did the same. And at about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. So that's at five o'clock. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said, you go into the vineyard too. So what we notice is we've got workers at 6 a.m., we got workers at 9, and at noon, at 3, and at 5. The workday ends at 6 p.m. So these final workers are working one hour, maybe. If it's getting later in the year, it might only be 15 minutes. But don't miss here that the landlord keeps going out over and over again, and he's the one that brings the workers to him. Okay, so that's the workers hired. Now, episode two, workers are paid. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those who were hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. So the ones that worked six, from five to six, one hour or less, got the same pay. Now, many of you have already made connections in your head, and you've maybe heard this taught before, and you're going, well, it doesn't matter when you get saved. It doesn't matter when you submit to Jesus and allow him to take your life as his own, even though it already is. You commit yourself to Christ. I can wait till the last minute. You can spend most of your life being like Scarlett O'Hare and saying, I'll think about that tomorrow. And let me tell you, the Bible has got some strong words on this. 2 Corinthians, behold, now, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There's an old quote, those who wait to repent until the 11th hour tend to die at the 1030 hour. So here's the thing. If you're here today and you're like, you know what, I've got plenty of time. You know, I've looked at the averages and all that, and I've got many, many years before I'm going to stand before the Lord. I'll take the time to live my best life now, and then I'll repent right before. I'll be like the thief on the cross. You know, I'll see it coming, and I'll do it. And I'll just say, don't do that. Don't take your life and bet it on the fact that you think you're going to live longer than you can. There might be people in this room today that don't survive this week. So don't wait. This parable's point is not, hey, you've got lots of time, and if you come in at the end, you've lived it up here on earth, and you get to squeak in right under the wire. Now, our God does take some squeakers. It's true. But the parable's point is not, hey, come be a squeaker and squeak right in. Instead, it's see what they get, and we'll see this in a minute. Verse 10, now when those who were hired first came, these are the 6 a.m. people, they thought they would receive more but each of them also received a denarius. So this kind of, you know, in order to get this, we need to do some maths, okay? We're going to do some maths, right? And in order to do this, we need to understand. So those who came in at five, they got paid $200 an hour. $200 is about an average day's paid somewhere here in the world. I think it's in the U.S., but I don't know. $200 an hour. Sign me up, right? Anybody else in here is like, yeah, $200 an hour? I could probably make it, make it work, right? right? The, the ones who came in and worked three hours, the ones who started at 3 p.m., they got paid $67 an hour. Not too shabby. I'd take that too, right? You all would too. I know you're all like, what's he going to do? He's going to say something. 
The others toil six hours, and they get $33 an hour. Still pretty good. The ones who came in at 9 a.m. got $22 an hour. And those who worked the whole day got $16 an hour. So now you start going, wait a second, I worked for $16 an hour, they worked one hour and got $200. It's not fair. It doesn't seem right. And it absolutely doesn't seem right. But here's the thing, the Bible's got some stuff to say on this, and we're going to keep going. Verse 11, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. It doesn't say to, it says at. So it may be behind the scenes, but the master sees it and says, these last worked only, or they said, the last worked only one hour. And you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. See, right here, we're to be reminded that Israel was famous for grumbling, weren't they? They're grumbling. They're, they're in the wilderness, and they're wandering around, and God's providing them water. God's providing them food. God's providing them bread. And they go, oh, I really wish we were back in slavery. God, man, did we really come out here to just eat food and have water provided and bread show up on our doorstep every day? Oh, right? The grumbling continued so much so that many of them missed out. Many of them died in the wilderness. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2.4, do all things without grumbling or disputing. First Peter, show hospitality without grumbling. James, do not grumble against one another. Brothers, so that you might be judged. Do not behold the judge is standing at the door. Grumble is one of those words that's never used positively. Well, in your grumbling, don't sin. No, it says don't grumble. Do not grumble. Israel grumbled. These men are grumbling. Verse 13, but he, the, land, the owner, replied to them, friend, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Jesus confronts them. I don't know if friend would have been the word that I would have used, but I'm much more of a sinner than this person. He does not say, hey, you know, it's, it, you know, it is what it is. He goes, no one lost anything. As a matter of fact, I didn't harm anybody in what I did. You agreed to this, and I agreed to it, and I kept my word. This reminds me a lot of the prodigal son's parable, and we'll touch on that a little bit here in a minute. But this is to be leveling. This is to be humbling. And throughout the Bible, it's those who think too highly of themselves who get brought down, and those who think too lowly of themselves get brought up. This is the picture throughout. See, no one reserves, re receives less than they deserve, but some receive far more than they deserve. So here's the thing. Verse 14 takes us to it. He says, take what belongs to you and go. I don't see anger there. I think he's saying, this is what you're owed. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? See, the owner, God, the owner is saying, it's my stuff. I can do with it what I want. And I am in no way wrong because I kept my word to you and I blessed those others. And I am generous beyond what you will even understand. See, we don't want a God who is not generous. We want a God who is generous because a God who is generous looks on us, sinners and deserving wrath, and says, those are mine, I want them. Those are my children. I'm going to bring them in and adopt them into my family so that they can become something spectacular. So this story links us with who God is. We need to remember that God does not owe us anything. 
Some people will trust Jesus on their deathbeds. Others will trust Jesus their whole lives. And others will trust Jesus' children, walk away and stumble through life, and then repent late in life, and all of them get eternal life. And this is good news. Because why? Verse 30. But many who are first will be last and last first. Verse 16. So the last will be first and the first will be last. No matter when they were paid, they were all paid equally. Now, there's lots of layers here, right? Because if you were to look at the rich man, he's a first man, right? He is the top of the heap. He's the best. All this money, he looks blessed by the Lord. And then you got this raggy, tattered band of followers following Jesus around who have nothing. One appears to be high and one appears to be low. And Jesus says, I'm taking the low and I'm elevating above the high. Also, the disciples are the first ones in into the family of God. They're the first ones there. They're the ones that are going to be there the longest. And later ones like Paul and Timothy are going to come in. And the idea is, hey, we suffered more than you. We're better. We get a higher reward. No, the reward is equal. Eternal life is the reward. Do not begrudge God, he says, for bringing in people who've not been through what you've been through. So there's the passage. Now let's talk through this. Let's walk through and talk through what this is. So the rich young man, remember we talked about, he comes in and he goes, I have my portfolio. You know what I'm missing in here? Eternal life. So what do I have to do to purchase eternal life? And that's what he says to Jesus. He's righteous. He's done all the things he's supposed to do. The disciples and all of the followers after them, all the disciples of the disciples are all Johnny-come-latelys. And ultimately, even the disciples are still kind of weighing it and going, hey, if I do this for God, then he's going to do that. They're, they're, They're balancing it. They're still stuck in that same, if I do this for God, he'll do that for me. Quid pro quo Christianity is not Christianity. If I do this for God, he promises me that I will get that. This is not what the Bible teaches. All will receive the same gift. Jews, Gentiles, young, old, deathbed conversion, five-year-old conversion in Sunday school. All will receive eternal life. So first thing we see, and I want to touch on these first before we, how we respond, is we see God's attributes here. God has lots of attributes. We see four on display. The first one is God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Sovereign means it's in control, ruling everything. God demonstrates that not only is he sovereign, but he's also fair and just. He keeps his word. He has the ability to pay all the workers. He has the ability to pay every single one. There's no wavering, even when they grumble. Isn't that good news? Because if we're true, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, there's been times that you've grumbled to God. You've complained to God. Is this really your plan for me? I didn't think this was the way it was going to go. And we still have a God that loves us. Notice here that the master is the one that goes to the men. They're not looking for him. They're just standing around, and it says they're being idle, which means they're just standing there doing nothing. They're not pursuing God. They're not weighing all their options and, oh, this owner, this owner. They're just standing there. But instead, God goes looking for them. The master goes looking for them. So how does that work? Well, obviously, we know, we read this last week in Ephesians, 
that we were dead in our, tr- our sins and our trespasses. But God comes and makes our hearts come to life so that we respond to his call on our life. See, God is the one who gets a hold of people's hearts. God is the one. And from our perspective, it's like, well, this person was going along, and they were on their way to hell, and then, whoop, they'd switched and did a 180, and now they're a Christian. And from our perspective, we're like, wow, that was a pretty big choice of theirs. Good job. But from God's perspective, here's all the things God started doing and removing and putting in their lives and Bible verses and people in their lives and old Bible stories that come up in their brains. And all of a sudden, their heart is primed because it's living and that heart turns to God. So God is the one who does that. God is the one who reaches out and grabs the person. Now, it'd be really easy at this point to go, well, if that's the case, then why do we evangelize? If God's the one that's got to go and like remove the stones and the hard heart, why do we go evangelize? Can't he just do whatever? And the answer is he does do that sometimes. The Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul, God like grabs him by the scruff of the neck and says, you're mine, right? And we've seen that with other people as well. However, God usually uses one means, and that's us. He uses us as the means by which other people are saved. It can be simply a God bless you at a grocery store. It can be a relationship with a neighbor that gets deeper so that you're basically family and they go, I want what you want, you have. Besides all that, God told us we should do it. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded and I will be with you always. He tells us we are to go, we are to be the ones to do that. So why does God send us out if he's the one that does all the saving? Because he loves it when we look like him. He loves it when we go and we share about our heavenly father, bragging on him. This next week, we're going to start selling uh, Advent blocks. That sounds kind of weird, right? Advent calendar, but they're blocks. They're little blocks. And on the blocks, they have handmade pictures. And on each side of the picture tells the story of the Bible and the gospel. And we as a church have purchased a a slew of these, and we would love for you to have them for yourself. We would love for you to have them to give to grandkids, but we are going to make it really easy for you to give these to your neighbors. The church is going to absorb most of the cost of those if you go on there and you buy them $5. We absorb like 90% of the cost because what we want is we want you to take those to your neighbor and you're like, you know what, we've met maybe once or twice, we see each other passing by, we want to give you this to celebrate Christmas with your kids and your family and having that opportunity to be what Romans 10, 14 says. How will they then know if they have not, whom they have believed? How are they to believe in whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, we are, we are called by a sovereign God in his wisdom and his intellect instead of God going down and zapping all of the humans and making them into his like robots. He's given us the ability to go and share the gospel with each and every one. And yes, you might share with your neighbors and you got six neighbors around you and you share with six of them and only one takes the blocks. And maybe out of this entire room, we get one family that takes the blocks and wants to come to church and maybe becomes a believer. We are not responsible for the results. The sovereign God of the universe is responsible for the results. We are responsible to obey. 
And so I want to encourage you, when these blocks go on sale on November 1st, please buy some and think about who you can give them to. And if you don't know your neighbors, there's this nice website that we've hooked up to called Bless Every Home, and it gives you a prayer list to pray through your neighbors every single week. You'll go through all of them, and it has their names there. It's not creepy. It's not some big brother thing. It's just public information. And so you can go over and meet your neighbor and say, hey, I want to give this to you. I want you to learn about what's most important to me, this God that is sovereign. Because our second thing we see is that God is impartial in his mercy. God is impartial in his mercy. Remember this denarius, it represents eternal life. Did every single member of the crew that worked, whether it was new or or early, they all got eternal life. No matter how long you serve, no matter how short, no matter how hard, no matter how easy, we all receive the same benefit. Jesus is saying the benefits of the kingdom are eternal life, and all of my disciples are equal in my eyes. So you may be here today and you're like, I don't contribute anything to this church. You know, I don't contribute anything to the kingdom. You are valuable in God's eyes. He sees you the same as those who are out winning people for the Lord. But he does ask that you be obedient. And whatever he tells you to do, who he tells you to share with and how he tells you to do it, be obedient with all your might. He'll give you the strength to do it. But his mercy is impartial. His mercy is impartial. So how can God be impartial in his mercy? Well, it's because God is just in his judgments. God is just in his judgments. Jesus' death on the cross pays the penalty. Sins must be paid for one way or another, sin being these things that separate us from God. Either we pay for them for eternity, or Jesus paid for them on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago. He has bought this for us. And see, this is where I think sometimes we get our idea of what faith is, is wrong. We think that faith is saving only because of its depth, or only because of how intense we have it, or how sure we are, or how strong our faith is. But it's not our faith that saves. Whether you have baby faith and you're like, I don't really know, but I think so, or if you've like, I've lived with Jesus for 65 years, he's done me no wrong, I have deep faith. It's not your faith that saves. It's who you have your faith in that saves. And praise be to God that this true faith is in the Savior, Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle writes, True faith in Christ, though it be a day old, justifies a man before God, as completely as the faith of one who's followed Christ for 50 years. The righteousness in which Timothy will stand on the day of judgment is the same as the penitent thief. Both will be saved by grace and grace alone. Both will owe all to Christ. We may not like this, But it is the doctrine of this parable, and not of this parable only, but the whole New Testament. Happy is the one who can receive the doctrine with humility. God is just. God is impartial, and God is sovereign. And finally, God is generous in showing mercy. He is generous. He shows mercy, and he just lavishes it on us. We see this with the last workers. God deals with no one unfairly. He deals with more, far more leniently than they deserve, yes, but God alone in his sovereign free will chooses who he will favor and in what ways. God determines he's going to bless all of them. He does it, and he does it generously. 
So that's what we learn about God. He's sovereign, he's impartial, he's just, he's generous. Now, how about us? What do we do in response to this? Well, I think, first of all, we need to be very slow to think we're the first, the first workers, right? Because that's kind of like an elevated thing. Well, I'm one of the first workers. I've been ministering for this long. Remember, the Apostle Paul came along, and the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. See, Paul gets this. Paul goes, I, I was on the wrong team, and God grabbed a hold of me. And yes, I'm a latecomer to this. And yes, I persecuted Christians. And yes, it was terrible. But I am here because of God's grace, not because I deserved it. See, the owner's defense of himself is the point of this passage. The owner did nothing wrong. He was generous, and that's who he is, and that's what we are to be like. We are not to automatically assume we are a first worker. Just like in Romans 15, 1, which says, the strong have an obligation to bear with the weak. We don't automatically just go, well, I'm the strong one, and I have to bear with all you weaklings. That's not the way it works. I'm a first hour. You're a last hour. Well, I'll bear with you. See, the point here is not the workers. The point is we should be captivated with the owner. We should be captivated with the fact of how generous he is. I mean, it's his stuff. He's the one taking a loss for the day. If we were to turn this into modern day, right, the owner is taking a loss on the day. There's no way someone worked an hour and he got $200 worth of work out of them. No way. No way at all. But yet he goes, I am willing to pay more and get less because it's not about what I get from you. It's about what I get to give you. And that is the key. So we need to do, before we get into our application, we need to check ourselves, okay? We need to understand that there is a way that we do this. One of the ways we do this is when something bad happens and we go, what do you mean I'm not getting that thing? Or what do you mean that this bad thing happened to me? God, haven't I done this or that? What do you mean I'm getting audited? I pay my taxes on time. I tithe more than 10%. What do you mean I owe more on my taxes? Come on, I teach a Bible study. Lord, what are you doing? Both my tires are flat and my spare too. Come on, I teach children. I teach junior hires. Shouldn't that get me a something? Come on, Lord. See, the only thing God owes us is the wrath we deserve for our sins. That's it. Everything else is grace. If we just talk about the wrath, it's all bad news. But the good news is, is that he gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us what his son deserved, and we get it lavished on us. We get it in our lives. We are wrapped in Christ's righteousness. Praise be to God. So here's our application. First one, don't shake your fist at God and despise his generosity. Why? Because we all need it. We need him to be generous. Because not only is he generous about who gets eternal life, but he's generous in all the different ways that he cares for us. So we need to be God-focused. We need to make sure we don't despise his generosity. 
His generosity takes two forms, and it's the gospel. We get what we don't deserve, grace, and we don't get what we do deserve, mercy, gospel. Sadly, for many of us, God's generosity is taken for granted, and it goes from amazing grace, how sweet the sound, to mediocre grace, how bland the taste. That's how we look at it, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to heaven. Yeah, yeah. Praise be to God. This should, this should cause us to marvel daily at the fact that God would choose us. So don't shake your fist at God and despise his generosity. Second, don't begrudge God's mercy on others. Don't begrudge God's mercy on others. Don't despise your fellow man. Don't look at the people in this room or other Christians because it's so easy now. We can see what other Christians are eating for breakfast and their worship services and what they're reading and what they're accomplishing and look and go, God, why did you let them do that? And I have been over your slaving and you didn't do that. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Jesus is telling us here, and then Paul is telling us in Corinthians, not to compare with those around. We should be grateful that our God is generous to some and to others. It looks like lack of generosity, but there's generosity there. Do we have open-handed, do we, do we praise God for his open-handed goodness? Do we look around and go, why not me, Lord? Why them? See, we need to recognize that this mindset of why them and not me, that's not fair, is polluting our, our view of things. Let me give you a picture of this, because I think this may be what we see when we get to heaven. There was a man named Jeffrey Dahmer. I think most of you are familiar with this person. This person might be one of the greatest monsters of the 20th century. The things he did to people, torturing, murdering, mutilating, are sick beyond belief. And that's as deep as I'm going to go into telling you about him. However, the day before he died, there was a report that he became a believer. He was baptized. He confessed faith in Jesus Christ. Now, he didn't die because he knew he was dying. He was murdered in prison. Many times people tried to murder him in prison. But they got lucky the day after he converted. Now, we have no fruit we have no way of knowing if this is true. We won't know this side of the grave, whether Jeffrey Dahmer is in heaven. But here's the question. What do you think about sharing an apple from the tree of life with Jeffrey Dahmer in the new heavens and new earth? Does it make you sick? Does it offend you? Does it, does it make you go, that's so unfair. He did everything wrong. He deserves punishment. But if Jeffrey Dahmer decided to believe in Christ as his Lord and Savior, all of the punishment that Jeffrey Dahmer deserved was poured out on Christ in his place. So Jeffrey Dahmer can get into heaven. And praise be to God, nobody in this room is Jeffrey Dahmer, but your sins are just as deserving of hell. And praise be to God, he came in, our super generous, shockingly generous God. The gospel is meant to shock us. The worst people ever, if they believed in Christ, will be in heaven. Praise be to God, because that means we can get there too, if our trust is in Jesus Christ. So don't begrudge God's mercy on others, because it's the same mercy he's extended to us. Third, don't assume God owes you anything. 
Don't assume God owes you something. The sins and the attitudes of the workers, they had a mercenary spirit. They were going to buy off God. They didn't recognize that God had the right to pay whatever he wants. It's his stuff. And then they became envious of those around them. See, there's two sides to this, isn't there? There's the people that go, I deserve to go to heaven. And then there's the group that goes, there's nothing I've ever done that deserves to go to heaven. And they're both wrong. The only way any of us gets to heaven is through Christ. So how does this assuming God owes you something sneak up on us? Well, first of all, we, we think God owes us a favor. Abraham Lincoln, who is one of my favorites, didn't get everything right. Before the battle of Antietam, he prayed to the Lord. He said, Lord, give me a victory tomorrow, and I'll pass that emancipation proclamation. If you do this for me, God, I'll do this for you. See, the Lord doesn't like that, because as soon as we involve ourselves in the, in the equation, we start taking credit for it. We start going, well, yeah, yeah the Lord worked that miracle and healed the cancer, but you know, I volunteered for nursery. And so, therefore... That's why God did it. I mean, think about this. We see this all the time. I know as parents, Lord, I'll do this, but help my kids turn out. And then what happens if your kids don't turn out the way you wanted them to? You go, I did my part. It's God's fault. This is not the way we are to relate to our God. We're to relate to our God as I am doing all in response to his wonderful grace and mercy. We can't be bitter about other people and what they get to, from the Lord. Lord, I deserve more. Why are they getting it? Why aren't, why aren't I getting it? He promises you to give you exactly what you deserve, but not what you've earned. If you got what you earned, we'd all be in hell. But we get his grace. This parable suggests that there is a spirit of Pharisee, uh, Pharisaicalism in us. We're all recovering Pharisees. We want it to be, I do this, I get that. I put a coin in, God gives me a blessing. Finally, and I think most importantly, don't grumble as if our reward is not worth it. Don't grumble. Our reward is not eternal life. Our reward is who's there for eternity with us. Don't grumble as if, oh, okay, I guess. Psalm 1611, you've made known to me the path of life. In your presence, God's presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hands are pleasures forevermore. Think about the, the prodigal sons, the parable of prodigal sons, right? It's not one prodigal, there's two. One runs away and spends all of his money. The other stays and works. The one who ran away comes back broke, and the dad throws a big feast for him. The one who stayed goes, that's not fair. I've worked so hard for you. Where's my feast? What does the father do? The father goes, yeah, but you've got me. All those years that you were away, that he was away, he didn't have me. You've been here the whole time. You've got me. I am here. See, here's the thing we need to understand. Heaven is not a, just a random happy place. Heaven is the name for where God resides. It's God's home. It's his home address. If you typed in heaven on your Google Maps, it would say God's house. That's what that means. And so when eternity happens here on the new earth, it says heaven comes down and heaven and earth are sandwiched together. And we're like, wow, does that mean we get to fly? Does, what does that mean? Is there clouds or harps? What? No, 
cut through all that malarkey. What this is, is it's saying God lives with us. God will live with us. There is no distance because of sin. There's no distance because of death and pain. He's going to reside with us. What makes heaven heaven is God's presence. What makes eternity amazing is not all those things that are gone, death and dying. I mean, those things are awesome, but they're like this. And then God is there. Eternity with God. That's what makes it great. He will be there. And he is the one that we get our joy from. And so, yes, those first workers, yeah, they have a long life. And some of you have been Christians for a very long time. But you are the one that gets to experience heaven on earth right now. Because what does the Bible say? Where does God come to live? In his earthly temple. Where is that? In your heart. So those of you that are the first workers, don't miss the fact you get God now. You get a preview of coming attractions, and the more you walk with the Lord through sanctification, which simply means more and more like Jesus, you become more and more aware of God in your life. And so when you are at that last hour, you're like, eternal life's great, but it's going to be great because of God, and I've known him for the last 12 hours of my life. That's what this is all about. See, we do nothing, and we get everything. What an unfair deal for God. But yet he did it. Jesus is butchered so that we can live with God. The most precious being in the universe is slaughtered for rebellious, evil, obstinate children. And that God chose you. You are here on purpose to hear this today. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He crushed Jesus on your behalf to make it so that you could have a relationship with him. So if you're someone who's been a believer for a very long time and you don't feel any closer to God, it has nothing to do with him not talking to you and not being there. You got stuff in the way. Repent and cling to him. If you're a new believer, don't settle for the God that you know now. Get to know him more and more. If you're here today and you don't know him, This is true life. This is what you were made for. So repent of your sins and return to him. Because our greatest danger is that we will do what God asks and then focus on, look at Lord, look what I did, rather than the Lord we're giving it to. But he does more than warn us with this. He calls us back to himself. He says, come and delight in me. Come and delight in my grace and my mercy. This is what he wants us to do, to love him, heart and soul. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, your word is true, and your word points us to what we need. And right now, Lord, what we need is more of you. Lord, you have granted us eternal life if we know you. Lord, help us to not waste the time that we have here on earth not knowing you better. Lord, you offer eternal life for those who don't know you. No matter what they've done, no matter how bad they've been, no matter how many times they've denied you, you offer that freely. And so, Lord, I pray that all of us would live in light of that. Help us to praise you and glorify you and be mesmerized by your grace and your generosity. Help us not to get our eyes on the people around us and other ministries, other churches, other Christians, and say, why them, Lord? 
Instead, help us to praise you and go, what a great God we serve. Help us to do that, Lord. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen.